You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. My name is Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Corey Firth. He is founder and CEO at NUMA. We're going to talk about the world of psychedelics, about the world he's working in to help bringing healing, this medicine, this process, this therapy to folks. And he's doing several different things, both in terms of creating facilities and creating opportunities for folks, working with people directly, as well as advocacy, a lot of things going on in Corey's world. And I'm excited to have this conversation and really understand his approach, his thinking, his mindset around this and the work that he's doing and where he kind of sees the industry going. Corey's been involved in several different areas, several different communities, both Canada, US, as well as Australia and some other areas and fascinated to kind of hear his take on things and where we are as a culture, as a society in understanding the power of these techniques and these medicines. So excited for this conversation. With all that, Corey, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Happy to be here. Looking forward to this chat. It's a pleasure. Before we dig into everything you're doing today, I'd love to just kind of talk about backstory. Like, how did you get into this work? How did you get into psychedelics? Like, what's brought you to this point? Yeah. Stop me if I'm going long, because <laughs> they could be here all day just talking about that. My background work-wise is in communications. I ran a social media and customer acquisition agency that I exited in 2017 mm -hmm. to sort of get into this work. But the passion and the purpose, I guess, of why I'm doing this work comes from my own experience. I think like a lot of people you probably talk to about why they get into this work. Yeah. I was born with a low functioning 5-HTT-LPR genotype, which is the gene yeah. that helps to express serotonin in the brain. Yep. And so I suffered a little bit of technical stuff. What that means is I am more susceptible to suicidal ideation, anxiety, and depression. Yeah. And I'm a poor responder to antidepressants, SSRIs, and talk therapy. Mm -hmm. So my whole life I suffered from a myriad of different mental health challenges, including suicidal ideation, which really sort of mounted when I started my agency in my early 20s. And yeah, I found out about that genetic issue when I was 28, mm -hmm. but I really started to suffer depression, anxiety, and then eventually suicidal ideation starting around the age of 10. So I went about 18 years not knowing what I could do and suffered a lot along the way. And then my brother ended up having a daughter right around the time when I was really struggling. And when I met her, I just kind of, I knew that I had to stick around. Like I just had this yeah. little nudge to do what I was planning to do. Mm -hmm. And that really was the catalyst to dig in. And then that took me through about two years of really exploring a bunch of different options. I always say like, I've tried anything that ends in therapy, horse therapy, <laughs> electroshock therapy, talk therapy, obviously. And then nothing stuck as much as the transformational psychedelic experiences that I've had. And one in particular that sort of got things going in 2017 mm -hmm. or 2018 when I traveled down to Costa Rica to experience ayahuasca for the first time. And then coming back from that really knew that I needed to shift my life in a bit in a different way. And I'll say this like really 
vulnerably, I guess, mm-hmm. ayahuasca cured me of suicidal ideation. Yeah. And I don't say that to be like hyperbolic or grandiose. It really was a powerful experience that to this day, I haven't had suicidal thought. Still dealing with the symptoms of depression, anxiety. We can talk about, you know, my thoughts on all that, but mm-hmm. that was the real impetus and the story sort of behind why I got in here. There's a whole bunch of other little offshoots of that story that I think are cool, that are fun, but that's really the background, why I got into this. And then, so coming back from that big experience, shut down my agency, exited out of there, transitioned a bunch of my clients and my employees, and then got into advocacy work, starting with opening a nonprofit retreat center in Costa Rica, then Mm -hmm. joining the Psychedelic Association, becoming the founding executive director there, where we did a lot of great advocacy work here in Canada and in the UK and across the US. And then I went to work for the Nikan Foundation, which is one of the largest charities in North America funding psychedelic research, and then started the Psychedelic Trade Association here in Canada, which is sort of the professional organization of the psychedelic industry here in Canada. And then now I own and operate a learning center here in Kingston, Ontario, where we focus mostly on building a bigger sandbox for the experience of psychedelics in North America, meaning that we're expanding the training opportunities for a wider body of providers and creating experiential learning opportunities for individuals that are looking to use these tools, these medicines, these experiences as a way to transform their lives, improve their communities, improve themselves, improve their work, improve their relationships. So big fan of psychedelics, I guess you could say, and they've helped me a lot. And so I just feel in a lot of ways responsible for trying to find ways to give back and, and make it a bit more of an opportunity for others. Yeah. So lots of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I try to keep it short. I'm kind of curious. I've spoken with several folks who have, you know, struggled with depression and suicidal ideation, you know, early in life, but I've also been quite successful from a professional kind of business point of view, Hmm. particularly kind of on the creative side. Do you find, I guess, how do you, I guess, attribute or connect these things? And was there ever kind of a concern or a fear or a worry of, wow, if I address this kind of the mental health aspect, am I going to curtail or change my kind of professional success? Or was do those two things completely independent for you? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, this is going to turn into a therapy session, Bruce. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the first part of your question was, what's the connection to sort of the darkness, I guess, Uh the dark night of the soul and sort of work and productivity and that, or the performance side. I guess for me, it's always been about performance. It's always been about... To be honest, that was a trauma response in a lot of ways. And I kind of, I leaned into the biohacker sort of category maybe for a long time where I was always trying different things and I always used it as an excuse of like, oh yeah, I'm bettering myself by, you know, getting into this cold plunge, which I still believe to be very useful, but trying all these different supplements and doing all these things, sometimes it ended up being more harmful than it was good. You know, it's a different dragon to chase than other more obvious addictions. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was always a fine balance for me. You know what? I found the harmony in it all recently, more recently than when this first began, where it was a pursuit of some void or some emptiness that I had that I was chasing to overcome or realize. And then once I realized a lot about my past and my past conditioning and my past experiences that led me to believe all of those things, it didn't quite change that desire to continue to understand it. It just allowed me to be a bit more gentle with myself so that I wasn't super critical or judgmental of like having it all fixed and figured out. Yeah. That said though, the other part of your question that being sort of this experience of maybe potentially becoming not productive or 
not in that sort of high performance place. I think, yeah, there's been bouts of that or there's been like experiences with that, but I've always fallen back to sort of the, the river under the river analogy, which is, I think it's part of like kind of Buddhist tradition and it's part of the, the Chinese tradition of the Tao Te Ching of this sort of undertow of the, the main river, the river under the river. And, and that's really a place of nothingness. In a lot of ways, like growing up, you know, it was like, don't be lazy. Don't, you got to do yeah. stuff. You gotta, I played a lot of competitive sports. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of like, you know, you can't just sit around, you know, but that concept of kind of nothing isn't actually nothing. It's not sitting around and doing nothing. It's just allowing, it's just listening. It's just really paying attention and doing the things that are actually going to create more meaning and move the needle in the way that's more aligned with what I believe to be the reason why I'm doing this work yeah. where before I would have been in my head about, oh, you can't rest, you can't sit. And then, and then there's a whole concept around flow states, which, you know, I'd sure. love to explore with you if you want, but yeah. that's sort of the next phase of where I got to, where I was understanding flow for me and really understanding the need to recover. So the need to take the rest, the need to lay off the gas pedal a little bit, the need for it not to always be about high performance. Yeah. Lots of, we could go there. I'm curious how your ayahuasca experience, like obviously sounds very pivotal for you in terms of really kind of changing how you were kind of dealing with or perceiving or even just kind of sensing, you know, this sent the suicidal ideation and mm -hmm. what actually happened for you there? Was that a letting go? Was it a higher kind of perspective? What is it an unlock? Like I'm always curious how people kind of see these experiences and what happens to them when they go through these psychedelic assisted experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hard to say what sort of, so quite a, a deep experience, long journey, yeah. seven days for traditional ceremonies wow. yeah. and really the biggest, the kind of first, like kind of deep therapeutic journey that I've ever been on, which I don't recommend that being your first <laughs> for anyone there listening. But yeah. yeah, I went down there with every expectation of like, this is my last shot. You know, this is it. You know, I'm going to try this out. If this doesn't work, you know, that's kind of it for me. Yeah. And I went into it with that level of expectation. So anything could have been, you know, good, I guess. But what happened for me there, I think was really, I think it's Terrence McKenna who has the analogy of shaking up the snow globe with psychedelics, mm -hmm. where, you know, you go into this experience, you shake up the snow globe, which can be quite jarring and quite like overwhelming. But then the snowflakes get to fall and they get to fall in a, like a kind of an aware state where you can kind of see them for what they are, where they need mm -hmm. to land. That takes a lot of time, takes a lot of energy to sort of integrate it and understand it and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that really shifted me there was I actually, I had an insight that came to me or a vision, however you want to call it. And for anyone that hasn't experienced this, it might sound a little bit out there, but I just had this vision of the future of my success and not success as a professional, whatever you want to call not it. Like stacks of money around you. Yeah. It wasn't like that. It was like very clear, like my place in the world. Yeah who I need to be with, who I need to surround myself with, what I need to change, what I need to connect more to. And I'll come back to that in a sec. Yeah. But then I also had a vision of my daughter and I had my daughter two years ago and this, I had this experience about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was like kind of a very clear understanding that I will give birth to a human being. I will be a part of bringing new life into the world. And at that time, one of my biggest dreams was to be able to feel fit enough to be a dad. And I kind of had that like imprinting I would call it sort of an imprinting of like, this is going to happen for you, you know, work through whatever you need to work through and come out the other side. And this is going to be going to be there. So I came out of it just like really inspired to kind of see what that was going to look like and what I needed to change. But it definitely just opened me up to a whole bunch of past experiences, past mistakes that traumatized me or that mm -hmm. I let sort of get the best of me. 
and a lot of sort of insight into what I needed to do to change that or to evolve from it or to become more aware of the lessons that were there inside of that experience. So really just kind of put some pieces together for me around a, this traumatic puzzle that I was sort of dealing with and allowed me to create a bit of a plan for sort of how to get more meaning out of life. That's what I came away with. There's just meaning. You know, when yeah. someone's suffering from suicidal ideation, there's nothing to live for. There's no mm -hmm. reason to move on. And I left there with more meaning and that hasn't changed. Yeah. So you left this experience with this kind of clarity or this vision. I mean, I guess it was this, like you knew what you were going to do the next day and you knew exactly what actions to take. I mean, how did you go from kind of having this experience, getting this clarity, having this vision to actually making sort of decisions and plans and actions in terms of, you know, obviously your agency and what you wanted to do with that, what you wanted to do with next, like how much of it was just, I know exactly what to do and I just need to execute versus there were still things I needed to figure out and what pieces were still, you know, yet to kind of place for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question because that's one of the biggest things in these experiences that I think sometimes gets undervalued in terms yeah. of the, the narrative. It didn't happen right away, you know, and the ayahuasca specifically, some other psychedelics are like this too, but the way I would describe ayahuasca is it's like you're bringing these four puzzle boxes of puzzle pieces to the experience uh -huh. and you're dumping all the pieces down and mixing them all up and you're not coming away with them very clearly defined. You have to go in there and now you get these new puzzle pieces and you got to figure out which box they go in. Yeah. So it takes a lot of time to kind of take all those pieces back, see where they land. Some of it's you're going to get wrong. Like one of the things I got wrong was I was in a relationship at that time. Yeah. And part of the insights that I was gathering was like, I need to help this person and I need to be with her and I need to like help her, you know, find her thing and do all that kind of stuff. But really the lesson was you need to let her go. Yeah. And so coming back was, you know, six to eight months of like, no, but I'm, you know, I'm supposed to, da, da, da. and then mm -hmm. realizing, oh no, this was, I read this wrong and I need to actually let that go, which is actually the thing that I needed to do. But in the experience, you're kind of, you're in this whole other hallucinogenic experience and you're not quite reading it right. So you're doing your best to capture it all. But yeah, yeah no, I, I think there's a real, I mean, the word is integration. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, you know, a lot of people just coming to terms with the idea of what psychedelics can do therapeutically understand that concept. But I would call it aftercare where, you know, you're not yeah. rushing back into another experience. In fact, you're taking a long break, I would say. For most people, they're going to need bigger breaks. Some people go at it, you know, pretty frequently. But yeah. to me, I think a good time frame in between is really reasonable to start to integrate things. I would say like even seven years ago, this experience happened. I'm still integrating that experience, sure. even though I've had other journeys. So I think that aftercare concept of the concept of integration is kind of an ongoing process. So it wasn't like immediate, but there were some very obvious things that I needed to do. One was to shut down my agency, but one of the clear things was I have a really powerful skill set of communications that can be used to steward these experiences into the mainstream in a way that can help others in a respectful, appreciative way to the traditions, but also in a way that kind of puts the two worlds of science and spirituality together. And so I kind of got that little vision, but I was in this agency where I was working with like Kim Kardashian's brand and like yeah. Universal Studios and South Park and Amazon and Google and like these sort of capitalistic materialistic pursuits, which again, you know, in so many ways isn't necessarily bad, but I needed to get out of that, use those tools for something good. And so that took a lot of time too. It took me about 18 months to really kind of, you know, exit the agency and get into some more meaningful work. but. So it takes time, I guess. I'm trying to even, I'm drawing a blank on the question, but I think time <laughs> and not rushing any sort of insight until you really know what the action is. Yeah, so there, there's a process afterwards of kind of integrating, 
kind of analyzing to some extent or at least interpreting the messages and the insights that you've gotten and, and how do you turn that into action? Yeah. And if there's any like recommendation there too, it's like find community, find yeah. people that have been through this. Don't skimp out on that part. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to pay a therapist. I don't think, I think that's a bit of an overblown concept that you need to be doing this in therapy, mm -hmm. but the aftercare should be spent inside of community with people that you, you know, that will support you that understand because not everyone will. Yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that. Like as you kind of look at the impact that you want to have in terms of sort of the world or the, the industry of psychedelics, like where did you first step? I mean, I know you've got NUMA, you've got a couple of associations, like how did these unfold and how do they connect and how have they been part of your kind of understanding what impact you want to have? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah. So I think it starts with the communications agency. I was really good at storytelling. I created a concept around brand storytelling that I used with my clients where I'd take them through a flow of understanding sort of their mission, their vision, like, you know, the, the real metrics they're trying to hit on. And then I would create acquisition tactics that would work towards that story to allow to create an ROI from that story. So it's really like top-down vision, communication, messaging to full-on acquisition and ROI retention. So I got really good at doing that for brands, like I said, named a few before. Yeah. But I realized that that storytelling concept could be used in a way that could help unravel the complexity of the psychedelic experience. One mm -hmm. of the words that keeps floating around is this idea of psychedelics being ineffable which is to mean that mm. it is indescribable. It's hard yeah. to describe. And I think in a lot of ways, there was the Aldous Huxley, the Humphrey Osmonds, the Timothy Learys yep. of the 60s and 70s that you know really came up with a lot of the language that we use today. And there's less interest in being a part of the language, being a part of the narrative, being a part of the culture and the description and the messaging and the communications of these experiences. Okay than there was back then. And that's really excites me. Like knowing that Humphrey Osmond was writing poems to yeah. Timothy Leary about the LSD experience and coming up with the word psychedelic. It's so cool. Yeah. That's yeah. so fun to me. And I think that the word psychedelic, you know, the idea of being mind manifesting, it may not even be the right word for it anymore, to be mm -hmm. honest with what we know now. Yeah. And so I find myself really interested in that side of things. And so understanding how I can be a part of helping others understand this for themselves, specifically those that are struggling. I'm not trying to convince anyone to do this if they don't want to. Yep. I think psychedelics are for everybody, but I don't think they're for everybody. So it's not like this is a convincing thing. It's about telling a story of what is changing inside of culture as we're part of one of the biggest transformations in human history, in my opinion, with the acceptance of psychedelics in a more broad stream way. Yeah. So I think it's really fascinating to be a part of that, capturing that. I have a talk that I give, I've been doing sort of a university tour of the journey in through time of sort of looking at psychedelics from the Western perspective, understanding the indigenous roots there, but also the connection back to the thousands of years tradition and ancestry within the lineages of the different cultures in Central and South America. And I like capturing all of that as part of what's involved in the context of today, where we're trying to fit all of these experiences inside of a clinical structure, inside of a biomedical model yeah. that quite frankly hasn't really been working. And I don't think we're gonna have the best results if we keep limiting ourselves to the current model that's quite a bit broken. And so part of what I really believe I'm here to do in a lot of ways, connecting back from the advocacy work of the Psychedelic Association or even some of the retreat work and then the facility that I run now is 
to open up the sandbox a little bit more to a larger body of care providers that understand the roots of where these things come from, understand how to create a safe and effective experience, but really understand from their own individual perspectives and their own implicit biases and their own social determinants of health, why they're in this work, why they feel they want to step into this for themselves, whether it's fun, creativity, play, or it's transformation, healing, and growth, why are they there first? Then how can we be a part of bringing this to others? It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a therapist or a guide or a sitter, but can you be part of a community? Can you be part of facility? Can you be part of an online group? Can you be a part of panel or, or something? Tell your story. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're allowed to be out of the closet, I guess, or someone said to me one time, we're coming out of the medicine closet or the medicine <laughs> pantry. And I like that concept of like, you know, we're all here. I'm rambling now for getting your question, but we're all here in a lot of ways sedated with other drugs that we don't acknowledge like coffee and alcohol yeah, and cigarettes. Exactly. Yeah. Why are these any different? We're, we are drugs. So yeah. a little bit more openness to that. I know why we're going through the current structures, especially on the regulation side, but I think we need to quickly move beyond that because it's like fitting a cactus inside of a balloon. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I mean, I, I always struggle at, I mean, if you look at the toxicology, like psilocybin anyway is, is safer than caffeine, right? From a pure, <laughs> you know, toxicology point of view, but yet we put it out there as being this like very risky kind of drug. So yeah. And the risk is not, the risk is not the drug. Yeah, We exactly. vilify the drug. The, exactly. the risk is the experience in the people. Yeah. So, but it's not about gate. I'm just going to get on a pedestal, real quick, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, it, it's, it's, we've gate kept the drugs for so long yeah. and we always continue to gatekeep even the the pharma drugs we use today the mm -hmm. psychonootropics and uh, the antidepressants and stuff we gatekeep the drugs today and we're going to continue to move that path it looks like in mm -hmm. a lot of ways um, but we can't keep gatekeep the information because that's what creates safety so the education the understanding the stories that's the tradition like all that stuff is what really creates safety not you know having it inside of a sterile clinical setting or uh, having a white coat being the one to prescribe it and all those kind of things. And I'm not trying to poo-poo the, the medical system at all. There's, we've, it's incredible what we've done as a humanity, as a, as a species to develop what we have, but this is different and we'll eventually get there. And I just hope we get there quicker. Yeah. I'm curious how you kind of balance or position yourself between, you know, providing kind of access and education for the people that are, you know, interested and curious and want to try versus, kind of influence or kind of jesting or helping people that may not be interested, consider it, you know, moving people closer to it. Like, where do you see yourself in that continuum or what is your intention, I guess, in the work that you're doing these days around that? Hmm. So I'll just take it from the last point because I see where you were going with it, that my intention for doing this work. Well, I have to tell you a story since we're talking stories. Yeah. So the first time I was exposed to drugs, I was in grade four. And I was the type of kid in school, I hated being inside the classroom. I didn't like that box. I didn't like the time structure and you had to learn this at this time and you had to do this at this time. I liked being outside. I liked being in the gym. It was more free flowing. But I really liked going to the library because in the library, I could pick and choose what I wanted to learn. If that day I wanted to explore and find Where's Waldo, yep. I would do that. If I wanted the National Geographic, I would do that. So when one day our teacher tells us we're going to go to the library for a special presentation, I'm pumped. Just get me out of the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> I go down. That's an important sort of dialogue because you'll see where it goes. Oh, yeah. But I, we go down to the library and we open the doors. We walk in. They had moved all the bookshelves to the side. And in the middle of the room was a four by six masking tape rectangle. Standing over top of that were four big burly cops. 
they proceeded to share with us that if we were to do drugs, we would either end up in that jail cell for the rest of our lives or we would end up dead. It was part of the dare and the anti-drugs. Just say no. Yeah. And so the cops telling us, trying to scare us in a lot of ways, that's their tactic, right? They're scaring us into not doing the thing. But as I described to you before, I I didn't like being put in a box. So I wanted to explore. That actually made me more curious. And I think it made a lot of my friends more curious. And so we did explore, but we explored from a place of, of really potentially harmful, potentially risky uh, circumstances and environments because we couldn't tell our parents that we wanted to explore. We couldn't share with our teachers that we wanted to explore. We just had to explore in the shadows with no guidelines, with no supervision, with no clear map or direction. And I lost a few friends because of that, I would say. Not because of that specific presentation, but I would say because of the way that we educate our youth on drugs and more specifically consciousness exploration. And I think we treat both of those things kind of like sex, where there's this abstinence approach. Yeah. It's like, don't do it, but we're not going to talk to you about it. Just don't do it and just don't ask any questions. We're just, just don't do it. Just leave it over there. Don't do it. We're, it's just, don't do it. Because it's an uncomfortable, vulnerable experience that not a lot of people feel like they're equipped to talk about. And I think that that's really why I'm here. <laughs> it's to acknowledge that none of us are equipped to talk about any of this. Yeah. And as much as we're doing as good as we're doing academically to understand where all this is going and how we can improve in certain ways. We're not being honest about consciousness exploration. And I believe that consciousness exploration is as innate as hunger and sex. Yeah. And it actually might be, both of those are altered states of consciousness. Yeah, exactly. so, you know, it might be the pinnacle, right? <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> it's the focal point of all those. Yeah. It's suppressed in society. We yeah. don't talk about that experience. And so I have a daughter, she's just over two. Mm-hmm. And so I have a, kind of wrapping up like kind of goals and intentions and missions all in one here. I think you can kind of make what you want out of it. I have a daughter who's two years old. She's obviously not in school yet, but I have a benchmark for when she gets to grade four to go into the classroom and sit with the teacher and understand how that teacher understands consciousness, how that teacher understands drug pharmacology, how Mm -hmm. that teacher understands, and even more specifically sex and race and all these other things that are topics of conversation. But specifically my mission sort of involved in this is how will the education system change? Not to tell our youth to go do drugs and explore their consciousness because there's breath work and meditation yep. that they can start with. And if they get to drugs, you know, maybe that's good or maybe they never will. And so maybe we actually will have less consumption of drugs because we're more honest about yep. the truth of, you know, sort of the innate human desires. Because you're not going to stop someone like me. And there's tons of kids like me mm-hmm. that are going to continue to explore, that are exploring, that are doing it in the shadows, that aren't doing it safely. And again, I'm not trying to prop up the promotion of drugs to youth. I'm talking the honesty around the exploration of consciousness and showing other ways to get to that place. So yeah, I guess that's my thing. It's kind of based on the inspiration of my daughter, creating a a better world for her. There's always that generational thing. I just want to create a better world for the next generation. I think we live in a pretty amazing world, to be honest too. It's not about you know, poo-pooing on where we're at today. It's about really sort of taking it to another level because we can, because we're so advanced, because things are so amazing now. Let's keep going. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about NUMA and some of the other projects you're working on. Like, how is this manifesting into the organizations and work that you're doing today? Yeah. So we call it the Center for Social Wellness. We opened about a year ago here in Kingston, Ontario, which is for your listeners, if they're in the U.S. and been up to Canada, we're kind of sandwiched right in between sort of Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto, and then just north of Syracuse, about two hours. 
we have a really tiny population here, about 150,000 people, 130,000 even, mm-hmm. but we have a really robust community, psychedelic community. We're about 600 people. So per capita, I would guess it's probably one of the largest in North America, maybe even at least Canada for sure. And so we, had, we always had a really great community here and I got through some of this advocacy work and then I saw what potential we had here in Kingston. And it's not just me, there's a group of us here that have done this. We got together and we saw the potential that we had. And so we petitioned the city of Kingston to give us a space for two years rent-free to start bringing psychedelic healthcare to Kingston. And so they gave us that space just over a year ago now and we've been building an experiential learning center, which is a combination of building programming to help certify the profession of psychedelic care providers, which is sort of a broad stream. We can talk about that more than just therapy and creating experiences for individuals to experience psychedelics up here in Canada. We have access to cannabis Mm -hmm. and this could be another topic we can pull a thread on, but we use cannabis as a psychedelic and there's a whole framework that we've been using there, not ours owned, but from another group in collaboration in a lot of ways. And so we use cannabis as an analog, not just for what's going to come with, you know, say psychedelic psilocybin or MDMA, but as a tool that's been used for thousands of years as an introspective tool to explore your mind and heal and transform. So we have those kind of combination of what we'll call training. Training on the professional side is creating that bigger profession of care providers. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of that personal development training. There's that personal development learning, which is all encompassed around the idea of experiential learning. So everything we do, it has some curriculum, it has some content, but it's really about introspective work. So it's always designed to like kind of prompt you to look inward. It's not about just taking some theory and kind of making, memorizing it and then regurgitating it back on a test. It's taking it and then actually creating a practical experience where you can digest it, experience it, embody it and integrate it all inside of a a learning center, all inside of a community, both virtually and in person. And that for me is a really interesting project that's just been morphing. We're going to continue to expand into other pathways to helping others build centers like this. That's kind of the next phase and then build some apprenticeship and mentorship models for practitioners and providers that want to start doing this work, but don't know where to start and want to look up to someone that can help guide the way. And then I run some microdosing coaching as well. Microdosing has become a big topic of discussion lately and there's a lot of people out there just ordering stuff off the internet and not really knowing what to do. So (laughs) I kind of come in and help people build a bit of a framework for what microdosing is, how it can be used. And then I'm also really passionate about flow states. Typically flow states are a state of consciousness desired by like, let's say an athlete or a creative person. Mm -hmm. But I actually see a, a lot of value with flow states being part of the healing, transformation, personal growth journey. And not a lot of people are exploring that. So I pair that up. There's a pathway without any of the microdosing on the coaching side, but then pairing it up with microdosing is a really interesting experience of helping someone get into a flow state to really understand a goal, motivation, a desire that they're working towards. It could be about peak performance, but oftentimes it's about sort of moving through a life transition, exploring relationships, exploring work and meaning and motivation exploring, you know, emotional health, that kind of stuff. So those are kind of the two big things that I'm working on. And then I sit on a couple of boards and I still do some advocacy work and that advocacy work is going to have to ramp up here soon because we need to, like I said before, just sort of expand the sandbox of where this is going professionally. Yeah. And where do you hope to be, I guess, at least with the center, like, where do you hope to be in a couple of years? Like what's success look like for you? Yeah, it's hard to say with, you know, I was constantly before, you know, this big planner, you're setting these five-year plans, <laughs> these two-year plans, <laughs> but it's hard with this industry because it's hard to look, you know, two days ahead, two weeks ahead with things changing so quickly. So ideally, 
Numa is more integrated with indigenous cultures, indigenous communities, something we're working on right now. We're a bigger part of what is happening at the academic level. So we have some partnerships forming around colleges here that are kind of adopting some of our models. And we're creating bigger opportunity for people to be supportive for themselves first, and then of other people that are exploring their consciousness. So I think we'll expand beyond psychedelics in a lot of ways, and we'll move into what psychedelics really open up for a lot of people, which is an understanding of their family systems, their trauma, their addictions, their relationships, their work, their meaning. So we'll be expanding our service offering to offer up more services that allow for people to explore in all kinds of ways, not just specifically to psychedelics, but psychedelics will sort of always be an anchor of the creation of what we've done. And and we'll see where things go as that, it's weird to call it an industry right now, but we'll see where things go as this continues to form inside of what might be sort of a regulatory body, what might be inside of a, a system of healthcare. Yeah. And we would like to play within that and we would like to be, you know, connected to that. But ultimately we think that's only one path and we're trying to evolve to understand a few other paths for how these things can be experienced. And I know that's a little bit vague, but again, it's hard to plan these days with where everything's at. Yeah. It's a bit emergent right now. So (laughs) I get it. Corey, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you're doing, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah. So NUMA is where I spend most of my time. So numacenter.com. We can put that in the notes, I guess. N-E-U-M-A. Center spelt the Canadian way. C-E-N-T-R-E.com. And yeah, there's some contact information there. You can reach me that way. Uh, But I'll just put my personal email out too. If anyone's excited about this, I am always happy to coordinate through email. It's coreyfirth at gmail.com. You can always reach me there to chat more. And then I'm Corey Firth on all the social things as well. I try not to get too much in there, but I'm being pushed in that direction more and more. So you can find me over on LinkedIn and Instagram and that kind of stuff. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, we'll make sure that information is in the notes for the podcast. So Corey, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. podcast.